All right, well, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn back to Revelation chapter 2. And we are going to look at the third letter tonight of the seven letters to the churches of Revelation. And this is the letter to the church in Pergamum, which, by the way, is modern-day Bergamum. If you've ever been over to Asia, minor area, just uh, on the coast there, um, Turkey, essentially, is where all these churches are. And so let's read this together, Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Again, notice the red letters, which means these are the literal words of Christ himself. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teachings of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I'm coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows, but he who receives it. Father, we are so grateful for this opportunity to study again your word. And Christ himself has said to us that we are to listen up. You've given us ears to hear the preaching, the teaching, the reading of your word. And so I pray that we would listen attentively, not to your servant tonight, the man delivering the message, but listening attentively to Christ himself and what he would have to say to each one of us who are gathered here today, we pray. Ultimately, our desire, Lord, is that Christ would be pleased with our lives and that we would be more conformed to his likeness as a result of hearing his words, we pray. Amen. Well, have you noticed these days that churches look less and less like churches? That pastors act less and less like pastors? That sermons sound less and less like sermons, and Christian music sounds less and less like Christian music. Have you noticed that, or is that just me? Is it any wonder, then, that Christians look and act and sound less and less like Christians? There appears to be little or no difference between many who go to church and those who don't. And instead of becoming more and more transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ, it seems that professing Christians are becoming more and more conformed to the world. One of the characteristics of contemporary Christianity is its capacity to conform to the culture. And we live in a day and age where the church has become like the world. And sadly, there's a growing number of well-meaning Christians who think that that's the way it needs to be in order to, to reach our contemporary culture with the gospel. And the goal of more and more churches today is to make their church as much like the world as possible. In order to, to market themselves more effectively, they attempt to, to make their churches look and feel and sound familiar to unbelievers so they don't feel awkward or out of place when they come to church. And this popular goal of making unchurched people comfortable at church, I think, is reflected in a couple of different ways. First of all, pragmatically, 
Uh, pews, for example, are being replaced with theater-style seating. Not that that's a sin to have theater-style seating in your church. I'm just saying that because we might have that in our new sanctuary someday. <laughs> Don't want you to think I'm a hypocrite here. The communion table, the baptistry are absent from elaborate stages and lighting and multi-million dollar sound system, pulpits are being swapped out with stools and pub tables. Don't get me started. Prayer rooms and classrooms are being supplemented with food courts and weight rooms and elaborate play areas that rival anything McDonald's or Chick-fil-A ever came up with for their restaurants. Many church services resemble a Broadway production or a Christian concert where people are entertained rather than, than a joyful, reverent gathering of believers where God is exalted. When you walk in some of these churches, you, you can't tell if you walked into a church or a mall. So that's pragmatically, but also theologically, just because a church looks and sounds like a church doesn't necessarily mean anything either. Because many of the mainline denominational churches that have maintained their traditional looking buildings, uh, beautifully accented with ornate carvings and stained glass windows and maybe even a magnificent pipe organ, are watering down the truth so as not to offend people anymore. Difficult words are being removed from their vocabulary. Biblical concepts are no longer considered politically, that are not considered politically correct, are, are being edited out of the church's teaching. They fail to confront worldliness and sin among their members, while at the same time they tolerate just about anything that unbelievers do. They permit divorce and remarriage without any biblical grounds. They marry same-sex couples. They teach their young people how to have safe sex. They receive practicing homosexuals into their membership and even ordain them as pastors. We've seen this even in the state of Texas recently with the whole Methodist Exodus, right? A lot of the Methodist churches in Texas have removed themselves from that denomination and branched off onto their kind of a new stream of more conservative uh, theology. But really, all of this is warped reasoning. The, these pragmatic, these theological trends in a lot of churches that in order to make an impact on our society, the church must adapt its methods to accommodate the changes in society. It's really, it's really warped thinking. Because in an attempt to connect with the culture around us, churches have compromised what Christ intended the church to be. And ironically, rather than increasing their effectiveness, they've actually destroyed their effectiveness. And they've unwittingly fallen prey to one of Satan's time-tested methods of making a church or individual spiritually ineffective. You know how he does it? Through compromise. Satan successfully reduces the distinction between the church and the world. And the way that Christ designed the church to make an impact in the world is by staying holy and set apart from the world. And that difference that people see in our lives provides us a platform to share with them how having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ can make a difference in their life as well. If people see no difference in us, why would they need Jesus? Well, tonight as we continue our study here of Christ's letters to the seven churches, we're going to be warned and encouraged to never let compromise creep into our church or into our lives so that we can maintain our effectiveness for Christ. Now, we've already seen Christ's evaluation of a church that fell out of love with him. We've seen a, a church that was willing to suffer for him. That was last week, uh, the church in Smyrna. And now we're, gonna, we're about to see what Christ thinks of a church that compromises either doctrinally or morally. And so this letter to the church in Pergamum is another opportunity for us to examine our church, examine our church, right, this church, and also to examine our lives. 
for the purpose of making any necessary changes to be more pleasing to Christ. So Pergamum was the third stop on the postman's route through the major cities in Asia. You may remember the map I showed last week. This is the most northern city uh, in that route. But this letter that Christ wrote to the church in this city follows the same pattern of the other letters we've seen so far. We're going to see the correspondent, the city, the church, the commendation, the condemnation, the correction, and the consolation. So first of all, the correspondent, who is, of course, who? Jesus Christ. And notice how he begins here in verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. So again, Christ opens this letter with a descriptive phrase about himself taken from John's vision in chapter 1. Notice verse 16 of chapter 1, in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, what? Two-edged sword. That expression, a sharp two-edged sword, obviously is a symbol for the Word of God. We see that uh, in other places in Scripture, Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Uh, Paul in Ephesians 6.17 uses the metaphor of a sword to describe the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. in Romans 10:17 and Colossians 3:16, Paul referred to God's word as the word of Christ. Interesting there. And so I think what Jesus is saying here is that his word, the word of Christ, is the powerful instrument by which he exposes and judges the sin and compromise within his church. And so this expression, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, This is not a positive, promising way to start a letter. I think when the believers, when the pastor there, the angel of the church in Pergamon, when the pastor read this letter to them, this sobering picture of Christ must have sent a chill up their spine, like, oh my, what is he about to tell us? Doesn't sound like he's too happy. And so here was Christ standing, if you will, with a sword drawn, threatening to punish them if they didn't deal with the doctrinal and moral compromise in their church. I think it's also important for us to note that in the Roman culture, the sword was the symbol of power and authority over life and death. Rome held the power of the sword, as they called it, meaning they had the authority to execute capital punishment on those who committed evil acts. Romans 13, uh, Paul talks about how God gave government the ability to to kill, uh, to punish criminals. And since Pergamum, as we're going to see in just a moment, served as the political capital of Rome in Asia Minor, the Roman proconsul in that city had that right. He had the power of the sword. And Jesus wanted the church in Pergamum to understand that he ultimately had the power of the sword, that he was the one who had authority over life and death, and that it would be better for them to face Rome's sword for refusing to compromise than for them to face Christ's sword for allowing compromise to go unchecked in their church. So that's the correspondent. Now let's talk about the city for a second. Notice it says, um, verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Pergamum was located about 55 miles north of Smyrna, about 15 to 20 miles inland from the Asian Sea. Uh, The city was built on a large cone-shaped hill that that proudly jutted 1,000 feet out of this valley, out of this river valley. It was said that as a, as a traveler approached the city, it, it had the appearance of this giant throne towering over the plain. It's no wonder why the Romans had chosen Pergamum to be their capital city in Asia Minor. It was a perfect location for, from which the Roman Empire could rule that part of the world. In fact, one Roman writer called Pergamum the most distinguished city in Asia. It boasted a massive library, 
second only to the one in Alexandria. In fact, the third century king of Pergamum attempted to lure the librarian from the Alexandrian library to, to his city. And uh, the Egyptian ruler at the time found that out and not only refused to allow the librarian to leave, but prohibited the further export of papyrus to Pergamum. And so out of necessity to provide writing material for their library, the, the Pergamines developed parchment made out of treated animal skins, and it became one of their main exports. And the word parchment is, in fact, derived from the name Pergamum. More importantly, though, Pergamum was an important city of worship for four main deities in the Greco-Roman world, Zeus, Athena, Dionysius, and Asclepius. They all had temples built there in honor of them. In fact, the huge altar of, uh, to Zeus, the greatest of the Greek gods, was the most famous pagan altar in the world, and it actually, uh, I was looking at pictures of it today, there was, a, there was a guy that I've been following, um, he, he's, he journeyed to all seven churches and videotaped the whole thing and did a documentary, it's fascinating, and he showed a picture of this temple of Zeus that has been reconstructed, and it looks like it's in the shape of a throne, the temple itself. Above all this, though, was the cult of emperor worship. You may remember last week I mentioned that um, in the Roman Empire, their religion was worshiping their Caesar. Whoever the Caesar was, he was God. He was Lord. And so Pergamum was the official center of emperor worship in the entire province of Asia. And civic leaders proudly built the first known temple in Asia to honor a living Caesar. They built it to honor Caesar Augustus. In all the other cities in Asia, Everyone was required to burn incense to Caesar's deity once a year, but in Pergamum, they were required to offer a sacrifice to the emperor every day. So consequently, the believers in Pergamum were in daily danger of being put to death for refusing to acknowledge Caesar as Lord. One commentator said that Pergamum was the most dangerous city in the world at the time to be a Christian. And in the providence of God, he planted a church, the church in Pergamum. And so even though this was not an easy place to be a Christian, God chose to establish a local church in this city full of idolatry and full of immorality. And as we're about to see, it was really Christ's way of setting up a um, outpost on the doorstep of hell. Again, Acts doesn't record the founding of the church. We don't see Pergamum anywhere mentioned in the book of Acts, but we can assume it was planted during one of Paul's missionary journeys when he was traveling throughout Asia Minor. And so that's the church. Now, how about the commendation? Look at verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So again, Jesus says, I know. He says this in every one of these letters. I know. I know exactly what's going on in your church. I know exactly what's going on in your lives. We see the omniscience of Christ here. But he wanted them to know that he understood the difficulty of living in a place where, where if you stood up and said, I worship the one true God and I will not worship Caesar, you can get your head chopped off. In fact, Jesus refers to Pergamum as Satan's throne. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, which is an interesting phrase. Why would he choose that phrase, well, there's maybe a number of reasons why he chose that imagery for Pergamum. I think the simplest answer is it's, it was the result of the, the convergence of the political and religious elements in the city that, that, that made it like they were living on the devil's doorstep. Rome wasn't 
the only one who considered this city a prime location to control the Asian world. So did Satan. And he was taking advantage of all the false worship and the false religion that was centered there in Pergamum. And so Pergamum served as a strategic hub for Satan acti- satanic activity. It was hell's headquarters in that part of the world. And again, many suggestions have been made as to why Christ identified Pergamum as Satan's throne. The one I find most intriguing, though, is the fact that the main god of Pergamum was Asclepius, who was the snake god. He was the god of healing and was referred to as Savior. And people came from all over the world to find healing at the temple of Asclepius. And I read somewhere that that, that they would just let snakes slither wild in the temple. And worshipers were encouraged to lie down on the floor and let these snakes crawl over their body because they believed they had healing powers. I mean, that looks like something straight out of fear factor. But the point was that a snake was a symbol of the medical profession. It still is today, isn't it? The twisted serpent, right, around the, the, the pole there. Why is that, by the way? Well, they believe that because the, 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 the snake would molt, right, or, or lose its skin every year, that was kind of them being renewed, um, kind of being restored. And so they viewed that the snake had healing power. And so they worshiped this snake god, Asclepius. And so undoubtedly, such symbolism would have reminded the Christians in in Pergamum of of Satan, who's likened to a serpent all throughout Scripture, from Genesis and particularly in the book of Revelation. And so the point is that, that again, everywhere you went, you saw these images uh, carved into the, the rock and the temples of snakes. And so these believers had been called to serve Christ in the shadow of Satan's throne. And yet they resisted the temptation to run away to the spiritual suburbs, if you will, decided instead to stick it out on the heart of enemy territory. Notice it says that I know that you hold fast my name and did not deny the faith. They remained faithful in spite of the the severe opposition. Christ commended them here for courageously maintaining their commitment to him despite all the risks of persecution. They they boldly refused to worship Caesar and they stayed loyal to Christ. And he mentions a guy named Antipas. He says, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you. Commentators say that that Antipas was likely one of the pastors of the church in Pergamum who was martyred for refusing to compromise his faith in Christ. According to tradition, he opposed the the priests of Asclepius, the the snake god, and he would cast out demons from these priests, and you can just imagine how demonic that whole religion was. And so the emperor Domitian had him roasted to death inside a brass bull. To make an example out of it. But he was willing to pay the ultimate price for the sake of Christ. And as a result, Christ paid Antimus a tremendous compliment. He called him my faithful witness. I mean, I can't think of a greater tribute, can you? In fact, that was the same title used elsewhere in this context to describe Christ himself. Chapter 1, verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Chapter 3, verse 14, the amen, the faithful and true witness. So he was likening him to himself. What a great epitaph. If you're looking for something to put on your gravestone, right, someday, that wouldn't be a bad one to choose My faithful one. Well, that's the good news. Let's get on to the bad news. (laughs) Number five, the condemnation. Verse 14, but 
I have a few things against you. So despite their steadfastness, sin had slipped in the back door of the church in Pergamum. Notice he says, I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Again, it might have been that they were so focused on the attacks from the outside world that they failed to see that the real danger existed inside the four walls of their church. Someone said this, if Satan can't defeat a church, he'll join it. Don't be that tool that Satan uses in the life of a church to take it down, to divide it. So he says, I have a few things against you. And uh, apparently, while the majority of the believers at Pergamum were faithful and loyal to the truth, there were some who had come to believe in false doctrine. And so Jesus rebuked the church at large for tolerating this heresy within their ranks that threatened to infect their entire fellowship. I mean, one cancer cell spreads, right, and multiplies uh, throughout the entire body. And so like cancer, false teaching must be exposed and removed immediately. And Christ likened the, the heresy that had infiltrated this church to the teaching of Balaam, which, by the way, is mentioned a couple times uh, in the New Testament. In particular, the two books of the New Testament addressing false teaching, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. And then Jude 11 says this, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam. So we need to ask ourselves, who was Balaam? And we don't have time to, to look back at this in detail, but you can just maybe write down Numbers 22 to 25, Numbers 22 to 25, and that's where we learn about this notorious Old Testament prophet named Balaam. And uh, he lived during the time of Israel's wilderness wanderings, um, God's chosen people had just defeated the Ammonites, and now the Moabites looked like they would be next. And so when Balak, who was the king of Moab, received a report that the Israelites were advancing toward them, he knew there was no way that his army could defeat them. And so in desperation, he called on a pagan prophet named Balaam for help and told him he would pay him to curse Israel. And so looking for some easy money, Balaam tried three times to curse the people of God, but each time he tried to curse them, only blessings came out of his mouth. And so no matter how hard he tried, he couldn't curse the people of God. God wouldn't let him. And so out of frustration, he devised an ingenious plan. If he couldn't curse them, his only hope was to get them to compromise and bring the curse of God upon themselves. And so he counseled Balak, the king of Moab, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. And he told him to employ sensuous women to entice the men of Israel into immorality and idolatry, and then God would judge them for their disobedience. And so Balak did exactly as Balaam suggested, and Israel gave in to temptation they parted with these pagan women. They ended up committing immorality. Eventually, they worshiped their false gods, which involved eating meat offered to idols during these pagan ceremonies. And as a result of this compromise, God sent a plague among the nation of Israel, killing 24,000 Jews. And so this teaching of Balaam, as it's referred to here in Revelation 2.14, is, is essentially encouraging compromise. 
It's the belief that it's okay to have maybe one foot in the church and one foot in the world. There's nothing wrong with having, trying to have your cake and eat it too, if you will. It's possible to indulge in the things of the world all week and then come to church on Sunday and worship Christ. But we know what the scripture says, Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. 1 John 2, 15, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So notice he describes the teaching of Balaam, really an Old Testament example And he likens it or compares it to the teaching that was going on in the church that was the teaching of the Nicolaitans. You may remember that the Ephesian church was commended for for hating the deeds of the Nicolaitans. This is verse 6 of the same chapter. Yet this you do have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So who were these Nicolaitans? I found it interesting that several church fathers indicate that the founder of this heretical group was Nicholas of Antioch, one of the seven men chosen by the apostles to serve in Acts chapter 6. Remember that name? And apparently he defected from the faith and used his influence in the church that he had gained as a deacon uh, to lead people astray by saying it was okay to live however you want it to live. And again, this connection to to Balaam implies that that this heretical group was encouraging people to abuse the grace of God and their their liberty in Christ by continuing in the the idolatrous and immoral practices of, of the pagan culture out of which they were saved. And even though they had come to Christ, they they would just keep on participating in the immoral and idolatrous feasts and festivities of the Greco-Roman society that was there in Pergamum. And unfortunately, there's a lot of that going on today, isn't there? In fact, it seems like a lot of country western songs talk about that. What you're doing at the honky-tonk on Saturday night, right? But then there's Jesus on Sunday morning. Again, I'm not throwing all country western music under the bus. Don't get me wrong here. Don't want to don't want to revolt here. Um, but it's interesting. You see that theme, right? That you it, it's Jesus and my sinful lifestyle, and, he, and he's okay with that. I can have both. Beer in one hand, Bible in the other. So this particular heresy threatened the existence of this local church, and the church wasn't doing anything about it. And so Christ wrote this letter to tell them, hey, that needs to change. You need to do something about this. And so that brings us to the correction. Verse 16, therefore, what? Repent. Again, metanoia, the Greek word there that means a change of mind that results in a change of behavior. So Christ was talking about a complete turnaround here. There was a sense of, of urgency in, in, in Christ's voice here, like, like repent like now. That don't put it off another day. Deal with the sin in your life immediately. Turn around this instant. Don't, don't think, well, I've got, I've got plenty of time to get right with God. God has unlimited amount of grace and and, and unending forgiveness. I can just keep sinning and asking him to forgive me and everything's going to be okay. That's not what Christ said in this verse. He said that that serious danger was waiting just around the corner if they didn't repent right away. He says, therefore, repent or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. And I think the principle here is this, that sudden judgment will come upon a church that harbors doctrinal or moral compromise. And Jesus threatens to go to war against any church that refuses to confront sin within its members. 
I mean, the last thing any church should want is to have Jesus go to war against them. But when we fail to deal with compromise in our church or in our lives, we make ourselves an enemy of Christ. James 4.4, we mentioned this a couple weeks ago, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So the implication here, and don't miss this, the implication is that Christ would not only punish those who were involved in this heretical group and who were involved in immorality, but he would also judge those who knew about it but weren't doing anything about it. And while tolerance is considered a virtue in our culture today, tolerating heretical teaching or sinful behavior in the church is not a virtue, it's a sin. And so refusing to deal with with the sin in their church made the entire church, especially the leadership, as guilty as those who were teaching error and committing immorality. And I think that same principle applies to us today. If we see someone in sin and we don't go to them and lovingly seek to restore them, then we are just as guilty of sin as they are. I mean, that's what Galatians 6.1 says. Brethren, talking to believers, if, any of, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. That's not a suggestion, by the way. That's a command. That, that's one of the one another's of Scripture. That's the general overarching principle that if we see someone caught in some kind of sin, and it doesn't mean they got caught, it means they're trapped in some sinful decision or lifestyle or relationship, that's the idea there, that we're to restore them, that's the general overarching principle. Jesus gave the specific steps that we are to follow when we're seeking to restore someone, Matthew 18 This is that passage that is often referred to as church discipline, which I think that whole concept of church discipline has gotten a bad name, right, a bad rap. It sounds very negative, but if you look in the context of Jesus' teaching on church discipline, it really is better, I think, viewed as church restoration because the story right before the four steps of church discipline are about a man who loses a sheep. And so he leaves the 99 on the mountains and goes and search for the one that strayed. If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of the Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. In other words, what do you do when somebody in the church strays? When one of the sheep strays off, you leave the rest behind and you go after that sheep. Why, to hit him over the head and say, you knucklehead sheep, what are you doing? No, it's to restore him, right, to rescue him and to bring them back into the the, the fold. So Jesus goes on, he says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. So the first step of church discipline or restoring a, a sinning believer is to confront them privately. The one who knows goes because he knows. And so you go privately and you confront that person in love. And hopefully they'll admit, you're right, that what I'm doing is wrong. I sinned against the Lord and I need to seek forgiveness and I need to be, uh, you know, I need to be restored to my relationship with God and to everyone else my sin is affected. And guess what? The process is over. But Jesus said, if he does not listen to you, Jesus anticipated that not everyone would have a repentant heart initially. So he says, if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. In other words, you go get one or two other people who can come along with you and reconfront that person. 
And those witnesses are there to verify, number one, is their sin actually being committed? Is this person really in sin? Um, is, did that first guy that went and confronted, that first person that went and confronted them, were they being gracious? Maybe they, the other guys would say, I, I think he is broken. I think he is repentant. So there's wisdom in counsel, right? It's, that principle, by the way, is from the Old Testament, that you couldn't bring an accusation against an elder without what? One or two witnesses. So you get a few more people involved in the process, and then it says this, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. In other words, if he doesn't listen to the first person, he doesn't listen to the group of people that come and, and you know, try to restore them, then at some point you need to tell it to the whole church. Why? So the whole church can get involved in the rescue mission. It's like the kid that right, gets lost, and next thing you know, the, the, the town all comes together at the, the firehouse, and they say, okay, you go here and look, and you go here and look, and you go here and look, and then you see this line of people walking through the woods looking for this lost kid. It's like the whole town gets involved in the process of trying to find this person and, 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 and bring them back to safety. And that's the point. He says, that, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, in other words, you've amped this thing up. Now you've got everybody involved, which should cause that person to realize, wow, I'm really, I am really loved by these people. They really care about me, and it would bring them to conviction about their sin and make them want to repent and come back home. But if he doesn't, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, treat him like an unbeliever. Why? Because they're acting like an unbeliever. Again, we've preached whole sermons on church discipline, which again, I prefer to refer to as church restoration. But if a church does not discipline its sinning members, Jesus will come and discipline the church. That's the point. And you think about 1 Corinthians 11 is a good example that the, the believers there in, in the church in Corinth were, were sinning while they were taking communion. And they were being selfish and they weren't being mindful of their other people and um, they weren't examining their lives. And so what did he say? That's why some of you have, sl- uh, have fallen asleep. In other words, what was he saying? That's why some of you are di- have died. God was killing some people in the church in Corinth, just taking them out because they weren't examining their lives and they were taking communion in an unworthy way. Well, that's heavy, but notice the consolation. And Christ is firm in his confrontation, but he's also gracious in his consolation. He wants to console these people. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Notice he doesn't just say to this church, but to the churches. That's including Lakeside Bible Church. We're to listen up to what, to the message of this, um, to, to the church in Pergamum. It applies to us as well. Now notice he says, to him who overcomes. This is that phrase that is used in every one of these letters. It's a reference to a true believer. And what Jesus does here, he provides the true believers in that church with a foretaste of heaven in order to motivate them to heed his word to the church. In other words, if you do what I say and you repent and you deal with the idolatry and immorality in your church and in your individual lives, you will be rewarded with eternal life. And notice there's three blessings here that Christ promised to those who faithfully overcome compromise. The first is hidden manna. He says, to him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. Of course, we know manna from the Old Testament, right? It was the the honey-flavored flakes that God provided to sustain his people while they wandered in the wilderness. In the New Testament, Christ likens himself to the true manna, the living bread that comes from heaven, John 6 talks about that. And so in other words, Christ was saying here that he provides 
or would provide spiritual sustenance to all those who place their faith in him. And this speaks of, a, of the close, intimate fellowship and communion that believers share with Christ. And so here, Christ is promising believers sweet communion with him forever. And this is a kind of communion that the world knows nothing about. It's kind of a hidden communion. Unbelievers are strangers to the, to the sweet spiritual relationship that we have with Christ. And so it's, I think that's why he calls it hidden manna. He also says he'll give them a white stone, which there are several possible ways to understand this white stone. In the first century, um, white stones were used for several different things. I think what Christ was probably referring to was the white stone that was given to the victor of an athletic contest, which served as a ticket for admission into the special awards ceremony or banquet. And so Christ was promising here that all true believers who overcome sinful compromise will be rewarded with, the, with an eternal invitation, if you will, or acceptance into his eternal presence where we will feast forever with Christ. The marriage supper of the Lamb will be the greatest victory celebration, greatest victory ceremony ever. And so he promises them hidden manna, a white stone, and a new name. He says, and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows, but he who receives it. So a new name, I think that signified a, a, signified a new identity or a new beginning. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. I think it also reflects a believer's status in Christ and the unique intimate relationship he has with each one of us individually who are his children. And it says there would be a new name written on the stone which no one knows, but he who receives it. You say, well, how, well, what, is it, what does it say? What, what, what's the new name? Well, I don't know. Only you'll know. This is what it says. You're the only one who's going to know what's written on your stone. It, it's kind of like when y'all get like you know, a gift, right? And somebody gets, gives cards to everybody and there's a, a little special note written specifically to you. And that's the idea. Again, showing Christ how intimate he desires to be with each one of us personally. And so I think as this letter wraps up, the anticipation of, of the glorious consummation of our relationship with Christ should motivate us to keep compromise from creeping into our lives. And so my question for you tonight is, are there any areas of compromise in your life? This is where it gets practical, okay? If I put you to sleep up until this point, wake up, because here's the application, okay? Are there any areas of compromise in your life, in your doctrine, in your marriage, in your finances, in your job, in your entertainment, in your personal purity? Have you allowed yourself to become entangled with worldly people or worldly practices? Are you aware of any compromise in the lives of others within our church? And if so, what are you doing about it? You have a responsibility. It's, again, one of the one another's of Scripture. If you know, you go. I'll end with this. And feel free to turn with me, if you'd like, to Numbers 25. I told you this whole thing about Balaam was in uh, Numbers 20, 22 to 25. And, and this is the climax of that whole Balaam story. And I thought this would just, in, might inspire you, okay? <laughs> Numbers 25. Verse 1, while Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. Again, they fell into the trap that Balak had set based on Balaam's advice. 
For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Like this was tacky. He like showed up with his Midianite woman on his, on his arm, right? Whenever, when the whole nation is mourning the death of these people for their compromise. And this guy shows up, kind of showing off his Midianite wife. And then here's our guy, verse 7, Phineas. When Phineas, the son of Eliezer, Eleazar, excuse me, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through the body. So the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. Those who died by the plague were 24,000. So Phineas' act of, of boldness, his, his righteous indignation, he was jealous for the glory of God, and God saw that, and he stopped the plague. Verse 10, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I give my covenant of peace, and it shall be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. I think that's the spirit of a true Christian. That, that should be the spirit of a, of a true church, is that we're jealous for the glory of God. And whenever we see and wherever we see compromise, we rush into that and we address it, starting with our own lives. And then once we've dealt with the, the log in our own eye, right, we can help other people with their speck. Let's pray. Father, would you give us the zeal of Phineas in the way that we address sin in our own hearts, that we would be jealous for your glory and want to root out any kind of sin and kind of spirit to death, to mortify it. And Lord, that we would do the same in other people's lives. We would help them. We would run with, with spear in hand, not to skewer them, but to graciously help them to overcome their sin, whatever that might be that they're struggling with. And so, Lord, make us a church full of Phineases who ultimately are like Christ, filled with grace and truth. Lord, that we would not tolerate any compromise in our lives or in the, lives of this, in the life of this church, we pray.